I want to get through 24 and 25, if possible. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the Word. How about that? Lord, we just thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we just uh, submit ourselves to your Word, and we just say, God, just speak to us. Uh, just do a mighty work in our hearts tonight, Lord. Challenge us. Make us think. Uh, make us look at our own hearts. And uh, more importantly, make us look at you. Uh, we love you, Lord. And we're just thankful that you share your truth with us, that you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, if you hadn't revealed yourself, we'd know nothing. So uh, just bless your name for revealing yourself to us in such a marvelous way. So bless this time in your word. We just... Submit to it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we go through these two chapters tonight, we're going to see David in two scenarios in which he has an opportunity to take revenge for wrongs done to him. One opportunity with Saul and then another with a man named Nabal. And in one scenario, we'll see David's self-restraint. We'll see his love for Saul and his respect for the position that Saul has and God's anointing on Saul as the current king. They're going to work together to restrain him from taking revenge on Saul. In the second, chapter 25, we'll see a very human David. He's going to wrestle through a rush of emotion and this immediate desire to want to take revenge on Nabal. But we'll see him respond to the appeals of a wise, quick-thinking woman. In both, the theme is revenge and how God views it. And we'll learn more about the character and the heart of David and come away with some lessons for us as we watch David go through each of these scenarios. You'll recall that David has been on the run from Saul. As we left them in the last chapter, God intervened right at the end of the chapter. If you remember, Saul had been hunting him down, pursuing him, and God intervened with the report that the Philistines had arrived. And so I believe this was a God-given distraction to lure Saul away from David for a time. But now Saul has finished with the Philistines. We don't doesn't tell us what the outcome of that was. It just says as he returned from the Philistines, we're going to see him turn his attention back to David. So let's jump into chapter 24 and verse 1. Now what happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, "Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi." Engedi means spring of the wild goats, and we've got a map up here that will show you where Engedi is roughly. You can see it's on the in the middle or so of the western coast of the Dead Sea. It was a fresh water source in an area that was not known really for fresh waters. Beautiful place. I've never been there. How many, raise your hand if you've been there. I know we've got people that have been to Israel and a beautiful place. I know uh, that's what it's reported. So it's like an oasis. David, in fact, would write in Psalm 63:1, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. If you could go back to that other map for just a second, the reason why I chose this map to show you, you can see where Engedi is, but it also, you can't see it, it's too small, but you can see other areas up there. If you got up to it, you'd see Wilderness of Ziph, the Wilderness of Maon, 
Keilah's on there, Dulem. These are all places that we've been following David. But the real reason I chose it is because you can see, you see all those different colored lines on there? Those are the paths that David traveled as he's running from Saul. So you can see the amount of ground he's covering, right? Trying to just stay ahead of Saul and, and Saul's pursuit of him. Okay, you can go back to the next one again if you want. And Getty was one of only two freshwater springs along that east, that, excuse me, the western coast of the Dead Sea. Interesting fact, you know how you can't drink the water of the Atlantic Ocean, right? Too salty, right? I mean, you just you'd die of thirst, right? The Atlantic Ocean's salinity, which is the salt content, is 3%. The salinity of the Dead Sea is 37%. Isn't that crazy? Which makes it really dense, right? From what I've told, it's real, it makes it, people can float there really easy, right? Of course, I would float anyway. But I mean, you know, like real regular people, you know, would float really easy because it's so dense, you know, up underneath them. But so anyway, interesting Verse 2, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Uh, the key thing to hone in on there in that verse is that he took 3,000 chosen men. These weren't just general guys. These were chosen men. This is the Delta Force, the special forces of the Israeli army. And it's really kind of overkill because he's got 3,000 men pursuing about 600 of David's men. So he's really intent on doing away with David and his men. Verse 3, So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. That's a nice way of saying he had to go to the bathroom, right? And so that's what he was going to do. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Now, this kind of gives you an indication of the size of the cave. David and all his men, all 600 of his men, are in the cave. Saul goes in to use the restroom. There's 3,000 men outside. None of them know David and his men are in there. So it tells you how big those caves are. In fact, I've heard that those caverns in that area can get so huge that you can fit like up to 30,000 men in one area. So, don't know if that's true. That's just what I've heard. So anyway, verse 4, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now what happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. I want to pause here for a minute because I think there's some really good points that I think we need to capture just in this, with this opportunity that David have, has. David is in a unique position. He's now in a position of power with opportunity to use that situation for purely personal ends. Avenging wrongs done to him by Saul. And I think an observation suggested by this opportunity David has, that it, it just came to my mind as I think of his opportunity, the first thing I want to note is that temptation increases with opportunity. Temptation increases with opportunity. We all know of David's character, but I have a hard time believing that he's never had at least the thought of 
revenge, retaliation against Saul if given an opportunity. Probably wouldn't be human if he wouldn't have at least had the thought, right, of doing something. It had to have been a temptation. You can't always control when opportunity arises. So I just thought it was a good caution for us to be aware that the strength of temptation is probably going to go up when there's opportunity. An example, I had a guy come to me one time who had struggled with a particular temptation for some 30 years, and he'd been able to use a brother in the Lord, and he had been able to keep it at bay for many years. But then all of a sudden, life circumstances changed. Before, he didn't have much opportunity. All of a sudden, life circumstances changed. Now there's opportunity, easy opportunity. All of a sudden, the temptation went through the roof. And he's in my office weeping. He doesn't want to give in. But it's so strong, right? Because now there's opportunity. So just be aware. The second thing that I think we should note here is that opportunity should not be the sole criteria for action. Okay? Just because there's opportunity doesn't mean you should do it. I was reflecting recently on Genesis 3. I've been probably, how many of you are in Genesis right now, right? And you're reading, starting a new year. But I was reflecting on Genesis 3 and the fall and the minimalist criteria that we use to determine whether something is worth doing. For example, Genesis 3, they looked at the fruit. She saw that it looked good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, and that it was to be desired to make one wise, right? And oftentimes that's similar criteria that we use to look at something and decide whether we should do it, right? Does it look good or fun, right? Hey, this that looks like that'd be good, looks like it'd be fun. Is it pleasing to the eyes or would it be to maybe other senses that I'm carrying around? Does it feed my ego and my desire to stand out in the world? These are the criteria, sadly, by which oftentimes we judge the worthiness of engaging in something. All the while ignoring God's mind on the matter. Now, lest we think this little bite of fruit was going to be insignificant, remember that every rape, every war... Every murder, every crime in history owes itself to this bite of fruit in Genesis 3. That's the nature of sin. So I think we can safely say that looks good for food, pleasing to the eye, and to be desired to make one wise are not enough criteria. Agreed? Not enough criteria. What does God say? What does He want us to do? So bring it forward now to our current study. David now has opportunity. But again, opportunity alone is shallow criteria for judging the worthiness of an action. Can opportunity be a piece? Yeah, it can be a piece of the puzzle. But it's got to be weighed against other criteria, not the least of which is God's word and God's will. What might have been the implications if David had a different attitude and had taken this opportunity? To fail this test could have disqualified David as it had disqualified Saul 
from serving as the Lord's appointed king over Israel. Well, not only did David not kill him, but after he'd merely cut off a corner of Saul's robe, his, this is evidence, I think, of a keen spiritual sensitivity in David. I think it's evidence of his love for Saul, for one thing, his sensitivity to Saul. But it was also evidence of his sensitivity to the will of God and what God thought about vengeance. Now, remember, his men were telling him, hey, this is your opportunity. You got to go after it, man. This is it. This is the time. Which brings us, I think, to another lesson that we can pull from this. The voices and opinions of maybe even faithful brothers and sisters around us should not be the sole criteria for action either. There is a time to solicit the opinions and the thoughts of others. There's wisdom in the counsel of our brothers, isn't there, and sisters. But standing alone, it's not enough. What does God say should be our driving motivation. When you have God's clear word on a matter and you have the voices of trusted brothers and sisters that seem to be confirming what God's saying and the doors of opportunity seem to be opening, then maybe it's looking okay to move. Another thing to consider is that God's word tells us how to respond when we are wronged. And revenge isn't it. He's given us his mind on revenge in both the Old and New Testaments, right? I'm going to read a couple from the Old Testament, a couple of the news, just tons, obviously, as you can imagine. But just a couple from the Old Testament, a couple from the, from the New Testament. The Old Testament, De Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. Translation, God says, I got this. You don't have to worry about it. I'll take care of it. Vengeance is mine. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And in the New Testament, for us as Christians, Matthew 5, I'm going to read verses 38 to 48, 48 real quick. Just pay attention and just let these wash over you here. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak as well. And whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks you, and from him that would borrow of you, do not turn away. You have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. That's an important statement right there. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. 
strong words, high calling. And then in Romans chapter 12, verses, really, I'm going to give you the references 9 to 21. Read that whole passage from 9 to 21. It's a really great passage on how to respond to evil, respond to being mistreated or whatever. But I'm going to read from verse 17 to 21. It says this, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That was Romans 12. I can't remember if I said that was Romans 12. Yeah, 17 to 21. Anyway, this is what we see David doing right here, this choice that he's making, right, to not, against the counsel of the people around him, to not go after Saul and do him harm. Another thing I think that we can pull out of this passage is that others are watching how we respond. Others are watching how we respond. David's men were watching him. David wasn't just learning how to walk in the will of God. He wasn't just learning how to live a life of dependence upon God for himself. He was leading others. Intentional at the moment or not, he was modeling godliness or godlikeness for his men. So a good thought question is, how are we leading those who are watching us? What kind of example are we setting, especially in this this regard of somebody doing something wrong to us and how we respond? Now, this may beg the question, why this seeming sacrifice of ourselves for those who are treating us wrongly? It's not fair. No, it's not fair. We've said it before. It's not fair. Christian life is not fair. It is redemptive. That's its purpose. Remember, as Christians, our goal, it's why we're breathing air, is to image him. We are called to be the image of God. It's what we were created for. Genesis 1.28, let us make man in our image. To portray him and his love and his heart. 1 John 2.6 says this, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Well, that's a tall order, isn't it? Remember, no one is more wronged than God is. No one. How does he respond? How has he responded? And David perhaps had no better opportunity than in these times when he's being wronged and hunted. No better opportunity to portray the character of God than to how he responds in this moment. Verse 6 of chapter 24, And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. 
David wouldn't even allow his men to do anything to Saul. One Another lesson that we should probably point out is that we need to respect the position of authority even if we can't respect the man, right? How many of you have seen Band of Brothers, right? There's a point in there where a guy says, somebody walked by him, didn't respect him for the position he was in, the rank he was in, and didn't salute him. And he yelled out at him, he said, hey, you salute the rank, not the man, right? We've got we've to respect the position of authority even if we don't always respect the man. Hard as it may seem at times, God is the one who raises up those in authority. God has plans and he's doing things and he's planning things and he's working things that we're not aware of. If we all we do is just see in our little frame we're going to miss so much of what God may be doing. God even allows wicked kings to be on their throne. Clearly. Where's your mind going? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, Pilate, Herod, Hitler. You know, he has, God has his methods. And we also have to be careful of short-circuiting God's plans. God has a way of doing what he's going to do, right? And getting something he wants done. But we can short-circuit his best for us and how he uses us in life situations to accomplish his bigger plans. David knows God is on the throne, and for him to prematurely remove the anointed of the Lord before God does, it can have tremendous consequences. Personally, even, for David to remove the God-allowed suffering in his life for his own selfish comfort is to short-circuit what God is trying to accomplish in his life. Remember, God is doing things in David. He's doing things with Saul. He's doing things in Israel. He's doing things in you and I. And remember, he can use suffering for his ends without being the direct cause of it. Man will create enough suffering on his own. All God's got to do is leave us to ourselves. But he causes even the wrath of man to praise him. And he can use the foolishness and the, the viciousness of man to accomplish his ends, which are always for good in the end. Something we often don't think about, but I think it's an important point. Suffering, if God's plan is sidestepped. By us short-circuiting the process, seeking our own way out, running ahead of God, not submitting to what God may be doing in our lives, suffering then just becomes suffering. We take God out of it, in a sense. But when God is allowed to be king over it, and we submit to what he's doing in it, allow him to use it, then suffering and difficulty and trials become redemptive in our lives and in the lives of other people around us. David the shepherd boy is becoming a king. God is using all of this delay and this wandering and this hunting him down and all of this. God, you said I was going to be king. Why the delay? Why this terrible trial and suffering because of Saul? God knows that the palace and a title and position are just ornamentation. God is using these trials to build in David the heart of a godly king. 
we're foolish if we try to pry a door open. Like Colonel Rader, uh, my mentor, said this. He said, it is better to pray a door open than to pry it open. If a door will not yield to prayer, it is foolish to pry. All right, verse 8. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David uh, stooped with his face to the earth, and he bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, no one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Let's not lose sight of the fact you remember when Saul lost the kingdom, right? He grabbed onto Samuel's robe and Samuel walked and it pulled away. And Samuel looked at him prophetically and said, this day the kingdom has been torn from your hands. And now here is David holding a piece of Saul's robe, right? And he says, see, God has given this kingdom eventually to me. You've, it's been taken away from you, but I will not take it. I'm going to let God and his timing do it, right? I mean no ill will against you. Okay, yet you hunt my life to take it. And I think verse 12 maybe is where we were. Let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. David's given it a noble effort here. I mean, this speech reveals the heart of David that we've been seeing, his willingness to honor Saul's God-ordained position, willing only to do him good, even though Saul's doing evil to him. Saul's going to have a moment of lucidity here. He's going to have some clarity. He's going to be, he's going to be humble here for a minute but it's not going to last long because Saul's idol, this desire he has for position and power is absolutely controlling his life. He can't see it. It's consuming him. Verse 16, So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? You can hear a softened Saul there, at least in the moment. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not, not usually. Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul recognizes something in David now. 
And now I know indeed. Why now? What's the now he's pointing to? What has he seen? He's seeing in David the opposite of himself. Self-control. To be able to suffer ill treatment and to be able to do good in return. Imagine how long a king would last or his kingdom if he came completely unhinged every time somebody said or did something contrary to him. Well, we don't need to look any further than Saul because that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what we're seeing. We see Saul just going nuts and killing people and stuff if he suspects him of being against him. But the kingdom probably wouldn't be around long. Certainly if it did, it certainly wouldn't be very stable. Saul says, now I know. I see the fruit of what God pronounced over your life, David. And note how it was manifested. Note how it came out, this quality in David. It came out through the crucible of suffering. The fruit of Christ-likeness is not in how many Bible verses we can quote, nor how many seminary degrees we have, but are you walking in the Spirit? I remember God challenging me on that. One time I was studying all kinds of things and I was just, you know, studying this and that and the other thing. It's all good, right? We're studying. But then one time I was off on some tangent, you know, and I remember God saying to me, Trace, Trace, yeah, but are you walking in the spirit? That dropped in my spirit like a ton of bricks. I was like, what? He was like, what are you doing? Whoa, that hit me heavy. Why am I studying the dimensions of the ark if I don't, if I'm not walking in the spirit? I mean, isn't that what it's all about? Can you respond in life situations the way Jesus did? Especially when you're wronged. I remember 1 Peter 2, when it says that Jesus, when he was reviled, revile is a verbal lashing, right? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He didn't revile in return, but instead he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Earlier in that passage, 1 Peter 2, it says, Unto this were you called. For Christ also suffered in the flesh, and we're called to follow his example. Verse 21, therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And of course, David's not interested in exacting any kind of revenge on Saul or his family. Uh, on the contrary, he's, he wants to bless his family, as we see, we'll see. In verse 22, so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the strongholds. Notice that Saul went home, but David and his men went back up to the stronghold, right? They didn't go home locked arm in arm, you know, back home to hang out with Saul and Jonathan, right? Probably because they didn't fully trust this moment of lucidity by Saul. Saul's not going to stay here, this place of awakening. Darkness, the darkness of his idol will close on his soul again soon. So just to summarize 1 Samuel 24, David had opportunity for revenge, but opportunity cannot be the only criteria for action. 
It's God's word that tells us to refrain from taking revenge. Actually, tells us to bless, to do good in the face of wrongdoing. Because others are watching, and God's goal is redemption for as many people as possible. He wants others to see his image in us. He wants us to portray him in the way we respond. So even if we don't have respect for the one in authority, we have to respect the position. This shows that we're submitting to God's plan in whatever circumstances we're walking through. The last thing we want to do is short circuit whatever God is wanting to do in us or in the situation that we're walking through. Amen. All right. Chapter 25. Verse 1, then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Samuel dying here marks the end of the era of the judges, right? You remember there we had the era of all the judges that we studied? Samuel was sort of a, a judge prophet, right? But his death marks the end of the judges, and now we're in to the kings, right? Saul, King David, Solomon, and so on. We'll have a whole history of the kings now. David is still hanging out in the caves and in the strongholds. Verse 2, now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Now this is a different Carmel, or Carmel, however you want to pronounce it, than Mount Carmel that's to the north and the west, closer to the Mediterranean. This is more in the center, center of Israel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now that's rich in those days. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. If he had 20 sheep and 20 goats, he would have been considered well off. This guy had 100 times that. Verse 3, the name of the man was Nabal, which, by the way, means fool. He's going to prove that. And the name of his wife, Abigail, means cause of joy or the father's joy. And she was a woman of good understanding. We're going to see that and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Verse 4, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men and said, David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men. And they will tell you, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, David clearly feels comfortable reaching out to this guy because there's something of a connection between them. David expects Nabal to know him. He expects him to remember or at least be able to verify with his men the kindness and the help that David's men gave them and the protection that they gave them. Verse 9, so when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Hey, if you've got anything, you know, any extra, you know, we'd sure appreciate, you know, a little handout. And verse 10 says, then Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? 
And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So Nabal's not a nice guy. I can almost hear Scrooge in here, right? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? You know? Notice how eaten up this guy is with possessiveness, right? My bread, my water, my meat, my shears, my. No acknowledgement whatsoever of God's hand in providing these things. Which leads us to another point. Rich or poor, all of us should recognize that all we have has been given to us by God. None of it's really ours. Right? It's on loan to us. In a very real sense, it's all on loan to even our kids, our family, all of it. We're to be good stewards and not be stingy. Verse 12, So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. <laughs> So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Verse 14, now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by day, night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sias of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. You ought to read that in the King James sometime. It's a lot stronger. Don't do that right now. I'll lose you for the rest of the study. Do it after. It's pretty strong. David's thinking with his emotions right now. He's following the initial rush of emotion that he's feeling rather than pausing and asking what would glorify and image God here. He's right. Nabal is kind of being a punk, right? But more important than whether we are right is how we are right. Lesson here, being right is not enough criteria for action. James 3, 17 and 18 says, But the wisdom that is from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, 
love the King James here. It says, instead of willing to yield, it says easy to be entreated. It means easy to be reasoned and brought to reason. We're going to see that in David. Now the fruit of righteousness, oh sorry, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's the wisdom from above. David's hot now, but he's quickly going to realize his rash outburst and plan to exact revenge is not the right one. He's going to display his ability to be easily entreated and reasoned with. To listen to reason. Verse 23, Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, and this is quite a speech from her, On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. Wow. Spirit of Christ there, huh? And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Foolishness. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please, every time she's saying my Lord here, she's talking about David. She's not talking about her husband. She's talking about David. And she's just being very respectful and very reverential. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Verse 29, yet a man has risen to pursue you, talking about Saul, and seek your life. But the life of my Lord, David, shall be bound in the bundle of living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a slain. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt with well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Incredible speech by Abigail. Of all parties, in this moment, she is the enlightened one. Hers is the voice of reason and, and wisdom. She's being quite literally, as Matthew 5 says, a peacemaker. Her message, look, God is going to prosper you. He's going to fulfill all of his promises that he made to you. When it all comes to pass, don't let a moment of emotion, an emotional decision, like taking your cause into your own hands and exacting revenge, taint the good work the Lord has done and will do in your life. You are innocent. You are being hunted wrongly. God will vindicate you. God is going to bless you. Don't ruin it by acting rashly by taking things into your own hands. Let God avenge you. Lesson here. Don't let one emotional decision 
keep you from God's best. So easy to do. Verse 32, Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. King James, he is strong again, right? So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. He's a wise man. He has shown wisdom from above and that he has been easily entreated and willing to yield to reason. Here is the making of a good king. Not perfect. He's human. Right? He was ready to go after this guy. But he's willing to recognize his mistakes. And he can be easily approached. He's approachable and reasoned with. Foolish men doesn't listen. Verse 36, Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. I wonder how often that was the case in that household, that she told him little. My guess is she probably tried for years and years. And at some point, she probably realized how, what a waste of a time it was. Contrast with David. She knew she could tell David and talk to David and talk reason to him. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him. And he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he kind of has an aha moment. He said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant, meaning himself, from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. He says, Wow, how close was I. David realizes how right she was. He didn't need to take things into his own hands. There's a saying that kind of gets tossed around among us pastors here and started by Bill. Uh, As far as I know, it's where it came came from. If you want to defend yourself, God will let you. Or you can let God do it. Generally, he does a much better job, more godly job of it, right? Last point is just a, a lesson point to put up there. Is the whole point of this whole study, really, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. 
but Saul had given Michael or Michal, or however he pronounced it, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. Just a note here, I mean, probably shouldn't read that section without at least noting polygamy has never been God's design. Never been God's design. It, it was man's desire that started that. The Bible oftentimes can be like a newspaper in that it's reporting news. It's reporting what's happening, but it doesn't mean that the Bible or God is sanctioning things. God's design is one man for one woman for life. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wives. Does it say that? No. Wife. And they shall become one flesh. So just to conclude here, opportunity alone isn't enough for action. Voices around us are not enough for action. Being right is not alone enough for action. Certainly strong emotion isn't enough for action. The hinge pin, what does God say? He says, vengeance is mine. Let him defend you. Don't do something rash, out of emotion, just because you have an opportunity. Wait on him. In the meantime, love, bless, do good to your enemies. Remember the world is watching, and while you're waiting for God to make things right, yield yourself to the lessons God is wanting to teach you in the wilderness that he's called you to walk through. Don't try too hard to cut them short. Remember he's fashioning something in the wilderness, in the trials, in the difficulties. He's fashioning you and I in his own image. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for your word. We just, we just want to submit to you, Lord. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard, God, to be wronged, to hurt. But our goal, the reason why we're here, is to portray you, Lord. And thankfully, God, in Christ, we have you in us to empower it. It's not something we do. We just are vessels. As we just yield ourselves to you, Lord, you love others, even our enemies, through us. And Lord, let the world know who you are, not us. We love you and we praise you, Lord.